Acts chapter number 11. And um, as we begin this portion, I I want to just read the first few verses of chapter 11. And then we're going to kind of recap chapter number 10 through Peter's eyes. Okay. And so we're going to back up. We're going to recap chapter number 10 as Peter interprets it, as Peter sees it, and as he recalls this to the uh, believers who were outside of who did not get to bear witness to what God was doing in chapter number 10. And so um, in chapter number 10, just really quickly, what happened was the church uh, to this point was overwhelmingly Jewish, almost exclusively Jewish. The believers in this period of time were those who had grown up under Judaism waiting for the Messiah. And now the Messiah, Jesus had come. And so as we come to chapter number 10, this man by the name of Cornelius receives a vision from God that says, go find Peter and bring him to you. Peter is one of the apostles, one of the early leaders of the church, a Jewish man. Cornelius is a Gentile, meaning not Jewish. And so they uh, send for, Cornelius sends for Peter. Peter has this vision from God and he goes to Cornelius, which is for the Jewish man, a big no-no. Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish individuals do not go and eat with Gentiles. Unacceptable based on the Jewish tradition. And so all of this had taken place because God had told Peter and God had told Cornelius for this to happen. Cornelius and his family and his household and friends, many were gathered together in his home on this afternoon, evening, as they gathered to hear Peter speak the word of God. And as Peter does so, he opens up, he shares the gospel, preaches the good news of Jesus to this house filled with Gentiles. As he does this, these Gentiles hearing the word of God believe and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And they begin speaking in other languages. They begin manifesting this obvious evidence that the word of God had come to them. And so that's where we leave chapter number 10. As we come into chapter 11, the Bible says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so this, this, uh, the news makes its way back to those in Judea. Judea being the southern portion of Israel. This is where Jerusalem, the capital is located. This is kind of the center of Judaism and the birthplace of the church. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And so when all of this comes out, what's the big, like, what's the thing that this group begins to fixate on? Peter, we heard you ate with Gentiles. And so the Bible tells us the Gentiles just received the word. And in the same breath, we learn that there are those in the church who take issue with the Gentiles receiving the word. How fun is that? And in fact, we're going to see more of this going on through the book of Acts. We're going to find that this transition, this this period in the church's history was not without disagreement because there were those who they saw Christianity as being this Jewish faith. They saw Jesus as being this Jewish thing that they owned. And yet God is welcoming in Gentiles. And so what we see is that these individuals, they see this and they begin to ask questions of 
Peter. And let's, let's read through the rest of this portion of our passage today. Peter began, this is verse 4, and explained it to them in order. He says, whoa, 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 back up. Here's what happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, Joppa being a, Ju- a city in uh, Judea. In a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And so he has this incredible vision, right? This sheet that's being let down, animals all over it, especially unclean animals, animals that Jews were not supposed to partake of. And so they go, Peter looks at this, he examines it, and a voice says, take, kill, and eat. And he says, no, 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 no. I know where this is going. I can't do that. And this voice says, God speaks to him and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived. And so as this vision is taking place, and in fact, uh, chapter number 10 records, this vision happens. Peter, immediately after, he's confused by, he's trying to reconcile what this could possibly mean. And as he's pondering it, God reveals it to him as these men, non-Jewish men, common men, unclean men, show up at the house where he's at looking for him. And the spirit told me to go with them in verse 12, making no distinction. And so he said, I didn't see these as being Jews or Gentiles. I saw these as men. I made no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And so he has these who had gone with him. We entered into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And what happens to those who had been skeptical of the way that God was working? Verse number 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, up until this point, these uh, the Bible refers to as of the circumcision party. They, they had some uh, interesting beliefs. They believed up until this point, and this would actually be just, just so you're aware, I'm going to give you a heads up right now. We're going to run into this multiple times throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see it again in just a couple chapters. We're going to see it again in chapter number 15. When you study the New Testament, you find it in Corinth, you find it in Galatia, you find Titus ministering to these people, Timothy ministering to these people over and over and over again throughout the entirety of the time the New Testament was being written in. You find this group of people continuing to exist. And what this group believed was they believed that in order to receive Jesus, you had to become Jewish first. 
So instead of being, I am saved by grace through faith, instead of being, I place my faith in Jesus Christ, like Cornelius and the others had, I have to first become Jewish. And in fact, we, um, we understand there were some that had taken these steps. They had become uh, Jewish religiously prior to believing in Jesus Christ. One such a man um, we meet in Acts chapter number six. We met several weeks ago. His name was Nicholas. He was a proselyte from Antioch. The word proselyte means that these individuals, so Nicholas in this example, had gone through the entire conversion process, um, which for men involves circumcision, it involves dietary changes, it involves multiple things so that they can become ceremonially clean in the eyes of the Jewish community. And so there are those that had done that in this group. They're called, uh, literally, we just read it in chapter number 11, um, in what, verse number three? Uh, verse number two, excuse me, the circumcision party. Um, think about that title that's given to them. Like we have in, in our political system, we have the Democrats and the Republicans. Could you imagine if we had the circumcision party? Um, I think many of us are going to say, I don't really want to associate with them. It's not the title that you want to be given. Um, but when the Holy Spirit inspires, this is what the group we know as today, the circumcision party. And the circumcision party said they have to be Jewish first. We are a Jewish faith, and so they have to be Jewish first. And so this became a sticking point for them. And so they go to Peter and they said, listen, you ate with uncircumcised men. And what we find is we find that this group went so far as to form their own party within the body of Christ, within the church. And so what we see within this, we don't see, and here's the thing, we don't see this group and we don't, especially as we look at the end of this passage, these that are specifically mentioned, we have no reason to believe that these are not God-fearing individuals. We don't have reason to believe that these are not good people who have bought into this false belief. That's not what we see here. We don't see them being condemned in this passage at all, in fact. In fact, what we see in verse number 18 is we see that Peter addresses these things and says, hey, listen, I get that that's not what you're used to, but this is the way that God is doing this. And when they heard these things, what do they respond? They fell silent. And then what? They glorify God. They glorify God. These are brothers in Christ, but these brothers in Christ had allowed and many believe many. It's kind of a, a speculation, but I think it's a really plausible one that these have been Pharisees or very strict Jews that had converted to Christianity. We know again from Acts chapter number six, that there was a great company of priests that became obedient to faith in Jesus. And so it's very likely that this group were just, they were religiously zealous they loved the law and they loved following it and serving God. But some point they allowed this zeal to become unregulated and it blinded themselves to the work of God. But what we find throughout this passage, what we see the foundation being laid for here is this, that God was at work in mending the rift between Jew and Gentile. God was at work in mending the rift between Jew and Gentile. You see, there were Jews and Gentiles here that now have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they saw things differently. But can we all understand that different is not the same as right and wrong? And so in this context, in this situation, what do we find? We find that there were those who said, this is how God works. And then now God had worked in a different way. And it took them a moment 
It took them a moment. But at the end of the day, what did they do? They stepped back and they said, God's at work, even if I don't understand it. And so we see that these groups together over the sake of what God is doing. What do they say? This is what Peter's response was. Because Peter, listen to me, Peter was a lot like this circumcision party. If we have to be really blunt here. We're going to find the, the same philosophies of the circumcision party, even though Peter's the one like confronting it here in chapter 11, he's going to sink back into it come chapters 13, 14, and 15. And then Paul's going to have to come around and be like, Peter, you just had this conversation and now you're doing it. Because why? Because all of us can fall into this. All of us can fall into this. God, you work in the way that I see you working. And sometimes God just has to say, listen, the box that I operate in is a lot bigger than yours. And so here, that's what's happening in chapter number 11. Now watch what happens in verse number 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution. So let's remember, let's remember right here. There is still persecution within the church. Those who are believing on Jesus still were finding themselves at odds with the Jewish leaders. So even these that are called the circumcision party, they had been rejected by the Jewish leaders. These were people that had also endured persecution for the sake of the gospel. They weren't uh, oblivious or they weren't immune to that. And so what we find is that the church has been scattered. Just quick reminder for all of us, because it's been a few weeks since we hit on that persecution. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. This is back in chapter number seven. They traveled as far as Phoenicia. This is that's uh, up in northern Lebanon, Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the words to no one except Jews. And so again, what do we say at this time? This was a Jewish faith. This was a faith that is coming out of Judaism. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. This verse is short, relatively. It's matter of fact, and it's a big deal. This verse is one that you could simply skim over, read over if you were just going through the chapter. But this verse is a big deal because up until this point, until Antioch, each of these scattered Jews, where are they going to worship? Well, the Jews would worship at one central location being the temple in Jerusalem. And so they would go to the temple to worship. Secondarily, they would go to be taught in the synagogues. And so they would go to a synagogue locally. And this is a lot more like today, what our church gatherings would be like, where this is a place where corporate worship would take place. And then there would be other groups and opportunities to learn and grow within that individual synagogue and that community, that local embodiment of the Jewish faith. And so what these Jews that had now become Christians would do is they would go to the synagogue. They would go to these uh, other Jewish communities and they would teach and they would preach Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. To this point, they weren't venturing outside of that. They weren't looking around the city and saying, oh, you know what? There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people within earshot that I could take the gospel to. They focused in on those who were like them to this point, which is the easy thing to do if we're being honest. But something shifts here in chapter 11 and in verse number 20, because now they're going to this group that we see called the Hellenists, the Hellenists. 
And this is, um, this is kind of interesting. Um, Hellenist is, it's a, if you look at that word and say, I don't know what that word means. Hellenist is just another term for Greek, the Greeks. Um, there, this word's used a few different times throughout the Bible, Acts chapter six, that word Hellenist is used and it refers to, um, Greek speaking Jews that are part of the church that are saved. Acts chapter nine, the same word is used and it refers there just based on the context to unsaved Greek speaking Jews. Here, it seems most likely since they're contrasting, uh, the Jews and the Hellenists, that this is speaking to Greek speaking Gentiles. This group isn't even Jewish when this word is used here. But now they go to this group known as the Hellenists. As they're in Antioch, um, I want you to understand Antioch is a very different place than the gospel has been spread so far, especially among the, especially uh, when you take into context, they're going to the Gentiles in Antioch. Up until this point, the Jews scattered and they went across Judea, primarily Judea. So they went to other Jews. They went to some other cities, but they're still going to the Jews. Then in Acts chapter number 10, Cornelius is this revelation. And he sends for Peter and Peter comes, preaches the gospel. And Peter leads Cornelius and his family to Christ. So now you have a God-fearing Gentile. Can I tell you, Antioch, the Gentiles in Antioch were anything but God-fearing. Antioch was a city that was known for its, uh, what we would today call its godlessness. Although there was no shortage of gods, this was one of the cities that the pantheon of gods was well-received and well-worshipped in. This was a place that was immoral in every sense of the word. These were people who wanted nothing to do with the prudish Jewish faith as they saw it. And so as the gospel comes to Antioch, I want you to notice with me, because we're still, we're still hanging out here in verse number 20. Who are the ones who bring the gospel to Antioch? Who kicks off this missionary movement to the Gentiles? What's, what's the, who is the individual that we read about in verse number 20? What are their names? What's their background? What are their qualifications? What do we know? They're from Cyprus and Cyrene. <laughs> they're people. They're human beings. But now as they go into this place, there was no formal command. There was no obligation from the church at large, but they went and they spoke. And watch what happens. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So a great number of these Hellenists believed. And so what happens now in response? The church hears of this again in verse 22. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas. His name means son of consolation. He was a friend to Saul after his conversion, he was one who had taken and been generous with a, a portion of land that he had in chapter number five of the book of Acts. But when he came and he saw the grace of God, so he goes to Antioch, he sees the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so here, as Barnabas comes to Antioch, Barnabas sees the grace of God. I love that phrase. He sees the grace of God. He goes to this place and firsthand, he witnesses the way that God's grace is moving and working within the people who have received the faith. He sees this taking place. Uh, Alexander McLaren, old time Baptist pastor, he said it this way, where the grace of Christ is visible, there is the church. And so he goes to Antioch and he sees this little infant church. This little church who is filled with new believers who don't know any better, who are learning and seeking after Jesus and growing in their faith. And Barnabas sees the grace of God among these people. And at this moment, remember, this is just directly connected with, we don't know exactly the, the time frame between Peter to Cornelius between Peter and the circumcision party or between now the, this uh, revival taking place, this movement taking place in Antioch. We don't know exactly the time frame that's mapped out here. There are a lot of guesses. To be honest, I don't trust any of them enough to share them with you because we just don't know. But what we do know is now there is this group of people Whereas just a little while earlier, it was, do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Now there is a movement of Gentile converts that is coming alive through the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. There's a lesson we ought to take away from this. Be careful about setting limits on how God works. Be careful about setting limits on how God works. Um, Back in the late 1800s, um, so most of you were not alive yet. Back in the late 1800s, the Challenger Expedition, 1872 to 1876 specifically, Challenger Expedition launched. Uh, how many are familiar with the Challenger Expedition? Anyone, anyone up to speed on their nautical history? All right, couple. All right, excellent. The, this is the original Challenger Expedition. There have been some since for the original one. About 230 men. They traveled nearly 80,000 miles on a ship, the HMS Challenger. Um, and I say 230, that's not quite true as over these years, the crew dwindled down to about 144 between departures, uh, illnesses, and deaths. This group was set out to study the deep ocean, to study the deep ocean. Today, the deep ocean is still a source of mystery. Maybe if you're like me, it's a source of fear. Um, I have this thing about swimming in, ocean, in, uh, in open water. Um, I don't do it, okay? Um, because there are things bigger than me that I can't see that are also faster than me, and I want none of that, okay? But the Challenger expedition launched out to study and to explore the deep parts of the ocean that to this point, there was no technology available for them to be able to study the way that we can today. And so this expedition goes out. And to this point, scientific consensus was because of the water pressure after a couple hundred feet. Because of the darkness and the um, inability to photosynthesize past a couple hundred feet within the ocean, that there could be no sustained life. So after a couple hundred feet, it's 
dead. It's empty. It's void. Nothing but water, minerals, crushing darkness. No thing could possibly live in that environment. That was the belief of the scientific community in this era. As they go out, they discovered life. As they would dredge, they would let out, uh, they would let out different means of gathering and collecting data and information off the bottom of the, the sea floor. And they would dredge down to five miles beneath the ocean surface. And five miles beneath the ocean surface, you know what they found? They found life. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't understand it. And in fact, for the next 19 years, articles were published based directly on the findings of this challenger. And so many before this had said, it can't be. It can't be that life would exist below the surface. It can't be that this could happen in this way. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't fathom it. Therefore, it cannot be. But when they actually went out and discovered it, what they found was, it actually is. It made them step back. And this is what we see happening in this first century church. There were these believers who had said, no, 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 no. This is how God works. And then God challenges, what an appropriate word, challenges these expectations. And all of a sudden, they have to look and evaluate and say, God, can you work in ways that I don't understand? Can you work in ways that are beyond my comprehension? And what happens here is we see that, yes, God does. He can and he does. Watch what happens as they saw Barnabas, verse 23. He came and he saw the grace of God. He looks around and he says, these are Gentiles uncircumcised, unconverted, except to Christ, Gentiles. And what does he do? When he sees the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas, because of this, Barnabas, he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul, remember at this point, he had been persecuted throughout the Jewish cities. He was not welcomed in the Jewish cities. And so he had fled to Tarsus, his hometown, a lot more uh, Roman, a lot more Greek in its influence. He's safer there. And so Barnabas says, I need help. You know who's not doing anything? Although uh, we have some evidence that Paul was doing things. But you know who might be available? I bet Saul is available. And so he gets up and he goes and he finds Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And so all of this is taking place, this explosion of faith. But watch this last. This, this is probably the best known verse in this chapter or best known, even portion of a verse, not even the whole verse. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians. Pause on that for just a moment. We only see this word Christian twice in the, in the Bible, actually. Although today, this is the way that many who believe like us would identify themselves as Christians. But we only see it twice within the New Testament. One of these, the first of these being here in Antioch. Who was the Antioch church made up of? What was the primary demographic of the Antioch church? 
Were these those who had grown up under the law? These were people who, they were, they were Gentiles. They, they were irreligious, or at least what we would say, or they were polytheistic even in their religions prior to Jesus. And yet, what is the first church? Where is the first group, the first people that are called by the name that we now claim so dearly today? These are the least expected people. People you never look at and be like, that guy is going to be one of them that's going to be called a Christian. And yet here, this is the term that the culture around them decided to use to describe them. You see this word Christian, um, it can be interpreted a couple different ways. In short, it means either little Christ or like Christ, or one who behaves in the same manner of, as Christ, one who follows after him. And of all the places that the gospel had spread, this is the one where this name originates. How incredible. At the same time, this is a dangerous thing that we're exploring for the early church. A dangerous thing. Even this very name is difficult for these early believers. Because to this point, these Christians under Roman law were viewed as kind of a sect within Judaism. To this point, the, the Roman leaders had said, well, there's Judaism, and then there's kind of this, the, the followers of Jesus within Judaism. It's just another split offshoot group within the Jewish faith. And what that meant for early Christians was, believe it or not, exemption from some persecution. He said, but Nate, you just told me that they were being persecuted. Yes, they were. They were being persecuted by the Jews. The Jews at this point have the ability to self-govern their religious affairs. And so they're going around and they are persecuting those who are branching out from orthodoxy within the Jewish faith. But you know who had exempted Judaism from persecution? The Romans. The Romans. When Israel, when Judea became a part of the Roman Empire, they said, you can continue to worship their, your gods, but only your God. You can continue in your faith, but only in your faith. And so they had protected. This was a legally allowed religion within Rome. Judaism. But you know what was not? Christianity. And so now as the divide between Judaism and Christianity opens up, that protection of the Christians under Judaism is no longer present. And in fact, over the next few chapters, while we also see the church internally wrestling through who is and isn't, how, how do they become a part of this family of faith? How do we enter into this grace that God has given to us? When, as this is still going on internally, externally, we're also watching persecution climb. Because not only now are the Jews persecuting these early Christians, the Romans are about to be too. But in the middle of this, in the middle of this, watch what happens in verse 27. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And if you're looking at a Bible map or anything like that, um, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. It's speaking of elevation. Jerusalem is up high. Antioch is down low. And so they're going down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus. So a man from Jerusalem going to Antioch stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. 
And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so what do we see in the middle of all of this? Agabus and these other men come from Jerusalem to Antioch. The spirit reveals to them that there's going to be a famine that is coming. The disciples, they look around and they say, hey, this is really going to affect the believers in Judea. To this point, the Antioch believers had not yet faced the persecution that they would soon. And so they look around and they said, hey, we have means, we have jobs, we have resources. Let's provide. Let's provide. And so they collect up an offering and they send to those believers in Jerusalem. And you know who that includes? That includes the believers who had just questioned whether or not these guys were also believers. How incredible is that? This includes those who are in Jerusalem, who were part of the circumcision party, who had just said, are these guys even actually? And now they are also contributing and giving towards those who had just questioned their faith just moments before. Why? Because they understood, and all of these understood, watch this, that the Christians needed to follow Jesus together. The Christians, now this term is broadly used, followed Jesus together. And I want to I break this down here. The Christians. These are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. These are those who have been born again by the grace that is offered through faith in Jesus Christ who are able to be made one with God through Jesus, to be brought into his family. The one who Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, and you will bring forth fruit. These are the Christians. What do the Christians do? They follow Jesus. They follow Jesus. There are a lot of things that they could have followed. They would not have received the name Christian if they had followed any of the rest of them. You see, it's interesting that we have in this, in this chapter, we have two titles that are handed out that are identifying groups of people. We have the Christians and the circumcision party. <laughs> those who followed Christ and those who followed circumcision, those who followed do this and behave this way and act this. Uh, you find the, the, those who followed Jesus and those who followed circumcision. <laughs> this broad fill in the blank for what today we would call legalism. Pharisaicalism, this following of the law over the following after Christ. But the Christians followed Jesus. And you know how they did it? They did it together. That's what's amazing to me is that as the Jewish Christians, I'll use that term for them as well, but as they heard the work that God was doing, what did they say? They said, praise God. Praise God. They said, if that's how God's choosing to work, Amen. And you know what the, the, the Christians, the, the Gentile believers did? They said, hey, we're following Jesus with you too. We're following Jesus with you too. They followed Jesus together. Listen, there is going to be a lot that they have to work through. There's going to be a lot that they have to just kind of wrestle with. But at the end of the day, they said, our goal is to follow Jesus. Oh, my goal is to follow Jesus too. Oh, okay, great. We're going this direction. We might as well do it together. That's how the early church behaved. And so the question, uh, this title, Jew or Gentile? Jew or Gentile? You know what Paul writes to the Romans? He says, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. 
There's no such thing as slave free, but we're all one within Jesus Christ. And so today I want to encourage you follow Jesus Christ, follow Jesus Christ. You see, it's our, our community, our culture wants to throw all these labels on all of us. Wants to, wants to label you in every sense of the way. Or wants to look at you and divide you up politically, ethnically, generationally, by your income or your financial status, uh, by your marital status, or whatever it might be. You're, the culture just wants to take you and cut you up into a hundred different pieces and say, this is who you are and make a list and this is your box and you belong within it. Can I tell you, our identity, who we actually are, is none of those things. Who we actually are is not those labels that others try to throw at us. If you are a born again child of God, do you know what your identity first and foremost is above anything else that the world can try to smack on you? That you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. You belong to him. There's no other foundation that we can go grab onto. Why? Because the rest of that stuff, it's all temporary. It's not eternal. It doesn't last. It is not what we are called to. We are called to identify ourselves, not only first and foremost, but solely in Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul would later write and say, I'd rather be ignorant of everything and knowledgeable about Christ. I'd rather lose everything else that I have and know Jesus and him alone. And so today, that's the challenge that I want to shoot to you. As we look at this early church, there are so many different ways that we can segment and divide and, and cross ourselves. And we can do all of this, and our culture wants us to. Worldly wisdom says, oh yeah, do this. But godly wisdom says, praise God for the work that he is doing.